from WBEZ Chicago and the Inescapable. This is Pleasure Town. In the late 1800s, two visionaries claimed a parcel of Oklahoma land. They had a dream to build a community for pleasure seekers. Before long, the settlement grew into a sanctuary for outlaws and artists, but after flourishing, it fell. Now, decades later, the town lies buried in the red dirt, but not even death can silence the residents' stories. So put on your headphones and hear their tales as we rediscover Pleasure Town. Hello. I think twice is enough. Just thought third time would be a charm. Yeah, charm was never your forte. I beg to differ. I got charm coming out my rear end. Yeah, if that was the case, explain to me how your charm was never enough to keep a woman around for more than a few days. Yes, Pleasure Town didn't have any women I felt were worth keeping. That's the dumbest thing you've ever said. Our town was chock full of strong and clever women. Strong and clever weren't really the attributes I was looking for. But you're right. We really did have some damn fine ladies. Yeah, we did. We did at that. And I think it's time we told more of their tales. Instead of hearing about me chasing tale. <sighs> I really don't know why I choose to spend eternity with you. When I arrived in Pleasure Town, I wanted to build a place other people could call home. Nothing brings me more joy than knowing I can make people feel at peace after a long journey. So I set up a hotel right in the center of town. I called it what it was, Amelia's Inn. People from all walks of life passed through and stayed at the inn. My only concern was that they hurt no one and they felt at home. While over the years I had many guests pass through, some more memorable than others, the faces, they blended together. Most were tan or burnt from the Oklahoma sun. Many were encrusted with dirt. A few wore jewelry encrusted with diamonds, but no matter if they were living the high life or the low life, most came looking for pleasure. Need a room? Got any? Yes, sir. We have a couple vacancies. This man... The one with a second-hand suit and a million-dollar smile, this is one of the ones I remember. I come here hoping that Pleasure Town holds up to its reputation, if you know what I mean. Where do you recommend I start? Well, later this week is the Cotton Festival. You can always get a good bite at Wholesome Gulch. Comedy at the Kaiser's Cabaret never disappoints. Look, I'm sure you have some nice things here in this one-horse town. But frankly, my lady, I'm here for the women. You see, I'm a pleasure seeker, but not the kind that's I watched the man's lips move as he spoke. Lips that concealed a set of perfectly aligned teeth, each one white as the freshly painted picket fence. Figured if I'd find it anywhere, I'd find it here. Then a breeze blew in, and on that breeze was a scent. As soon as I smelled it, as if my throat were possessed, I whispered, Luciana. Luciana was beautiful. She had long, dark, curly hair and skin that was blessed by the sun twofold. She walked as if carried on the tips of bird wings. And yet, despite all the beauty she possessed, she never spoke. 
Luciana was one of my father's girls. You see, I was born in Baja, California. Mother died when I was eight. My father, he was the son of a Spaniard and a Mexican patriot, making him loyal to no one but himself. As a young man, he headed north to find prosperity. Wealth was always a concern of his, probably because we had very little. My mother's family despised him. My mother was a Cochimí woman. My father's obsession with wealth was always a point of confusion to her and her family. I remember my grandmother arguing with my father. Why strive for gold when all that is precious is already here? But with mother's death, there was no more arguing. There was no more family. There was just moving. My father never stayed in one place for more than a year. He was like an oil man, tapping a community and seeing if it would deliver on its potential. Ever the smooth talker, he used his silver tongue to try to procure a luxurious living for us. He had all kinds of marks. Old spinsters who sat on King's Hoard. Wealthy drunks who hungered for spiritual fulfillment. Infirm people, desperate for cures. He had a knack for knowing what people wanted and knowing their motivations and exploiting them. But time and time again, he failed to hit it big. And so, like an oil man, when the well turned out to be dry, he moved on. And I, being a little girl, moved on with him. When the gold rush hit California, my father saw an opportunity. No, his mind wasn't set on gold. He was a dreamer, but he wasn't a fool. Instead, he saw, as he had many times before, a sea of desperate people in search of something, something that they would likely never find. You see, the boom of the years prior had abated, and so all that was left were some small prospector towns and a lot of poor souls. Amelia, it's time. Have your things packed? We're heading north. Much farther north. We're going to California. But I do not want to go to California. There's no business for us here. In California, you'll have the biggest house on the street. Think of it. A mansion on a hillside. And you'll have your own room on the second floor. Can you imagine? I could imagine, all right. I could imagine being miserable. But being a young girl with no other options, I dutifully abided. The mansion my father spoke of was a weathered, termite-eaten Victorian located in an overgrown field on the outskirts of a small town. He said he won it in a poker game, but I knew better than to trust his stories. When it came to my father, there wasn't much of a difference between lying and talking. This? This is where we will be living? You always break your promises. Amelia, you always... little girls do not talk to their fathers that way. You will listen to me. You will do what I say, and I say, this is your home. My father hired cheap labor to spruce the place up. With all the destitute prospectors hanging around, it wasn't hard to find workers willing to break their back for a dime a day. After about a month, the renovation was complete. That's when father brought over the girls. Amelia, meet Rosa, Francisca, and Luciana. They are my new employees. They will be staying with us. And in return, they're going to make me a lot of money. Now, I have a very important job for you. You need to be the caretaker of the house. 
I expect a lot of guests, and they expect a certain level of luxury, which I want you to maintain. What kind of guests, Father? I asked. Do you understand? Yes, Father. I did my job, and I did it well. I polished the wooden banisters, scrubbed the floors, and washed the curtains. I cooked for the girls and ran errands upon request. I welcomed the men, who were generally polite, but a few would greet my welcome with a lascivious stare that would make me wish I could shrink down to the size of a mouse and hide underneath the floorboards. There was one guest in particular who I grew very wary of. Even my father warned me not to get too close. He always had the stench of moonshine on his breath and the look of violence in his eyes. The man would inevitably choose Luciana. Why wouldn't he? She was the prettiest of the girls, with her sharp cheekbones, full lips, and brown eyes that glimmered like the gold so many of our customers yearned to find. One night, as I scrubbed the steps leading to the girls' room. I watched from the corner of my eye as the old stinky drunk followed Luciana to her room, fidgeting with his belt buckle and licking his lips with every cumbersome step. Two hours passed when my father approached me. He's been with Luciana longer than he paid. That's money out of my pocket. Go tell him he has to pay more if he wants more. But father, I, I thought I wasn't supposed to disturb the customers. If... You need to get more comfortable seeing what these girls do. After all, perhaps one day you'll be one of them. This was the first time my father ever made reference that I too might be for sale. I didn't know what to say, so I stayed silent and ascended the stairs to Luciana's room. Luciana, Luciana, if the gentleman wishes to stay, he has to pay for more time. Luciana, Luciana, I'm coming in. The room was filled with candles. They were all lit, creating flickering shadows on every wall. A pair of heavy pink curtains blocked the view from the window and absorbed all sunlight. Small picture frames sat on a rickety wooden vanity. Inside each were tiny faces. Men, women, boys and girls. It was strange to think of Luciana having any family. And there was that smell, a perfume, lavender, emanating from the corner of the room. It was Luciana, and she was clutching a small blue bottle in her hand. Luciana, there you are. Luciana didn't speak. She just pointed to the bed. A still lump lay beneath the sheets. Oh, Luciana, he's. Celia, what's taking you so long? He needs to go if he doesn't want to pay. What's going on? Wake him up and tell him this isn't an inn. He looked at me, and then Luciana. Realizing the body on the bed was now a corpse, he started yelling at Luciana in Cochimí. I had not heard my father speak Cochimí since my mother's death. And then I realized Luciana wasn't mute; she could only speak Cochimí. From what I gathered, Luciana told my father that the man had a heart attack, and she was too scared to call for help. Luciana then looked at me with her big round eyes, as if her stare could speak. Her message was clear: I was to stay silent. People dying is only good business for funeral homes. 
we don't need to scare off our patrons. Let's carry the body out back. As my father dug a hole to bury the body, I searched Luciana's face for remorse. And all I got was resolution. The world was rid of another evil, and we're better off anyway. My father patted the covered hole with his shovel. The sad thing is, no one is even going to miss the bastard. I think that was one of the most honest things my father had ever said. The next day, Luciana was gone. Got rid of Luciana. Didn't feel she was right for our business anymore. Besides, I think it's time to put you to work. I'm running into town, but when I get back, have Luciana's room cleaned out, you hear? The thought of being one of my father's girls terrified me. Though I had nowhere to go, I couldn't stay. I ran to Luciana's room and packed up some of the items she had left behind before packing up my own belongings. I then headed out to the open desert under the blazing California sun. Ma'am? Ma'am, if you ain't gonna offer any advice on where a man like me can have some fun, maybe you can just show me to my room. And if you want to join me, be my guest. You're a little long in the tooth, but I'm sure you know how to give a man a good ride. Ignoring the man's offer, I showed him to his room. Once I was certain he was settled, I walked over to the safe where I kept most of my personal belongings. Inside were the tiny framed portraits that Luciana had kept on her vanity. Their faces looked more like my own than the other residents of Pleasure Town. And so I thought of them as family too. A thin connection to a past from which I had fled. I then moved a couple of frames to the side, revealing a dusty blue bottle. I reached for it and turned it over in my hand while looking toward the guest's room. My memories of Luciana might be a thread that ties me to my mother's people, but I am not Luciana. After I ran away, I used any skill I had to scratch together a living cooking, cleaning, laundering, and all the while, no matter how much dirt I collected under my fingernails or how much grease smudged my face, I kept my integrity. I tried to do no man or woman ill, even when wronged. I knew my tenacity was enough to make sure no one ever treated me the way my father did. And so... I returned the blue bottle to the safe, brushed my dusty hands off the front of my skirt, and went back to tending my inn. Pleasure Town will return in a moment. You know, sometimes you run away from your family, and sometimes they run away from you. I think that's something you and I know all too well. Not as well as Remy knows it. Her family pushed her away, and between them drove a wedge the size of an ocean. (sighs) 
your trunk down for you. You can collect yourself. Yes. Thank you. The sparrow is not a real one. A real Spanish sparrow calls out much more seldom, with whole seconds between his chirrups. Mother kept a real one in the solarium, in a white painted cage as large as my dollhouse. I would sit near it after my lessons and watch the creature flit from one side of its home all the way to the other. The poor wretch. Such a dreadfully lonely existence. I was not at all surprised when it died. That was when Father gave the little clockwork sparrow to Mother. He'd been on a trip to Paris and came home with a small, heavy box no bigger than her two hands together. I remember how she held them out in anticipation of the gift before she even kissed him home. I was forbidden from Mother's sitting room when I was no longer small enough for the ladies to dote upon, but I could hear how they gasped when they came to call and saw him, how they marveled at the tiny russet-headed thing, beating its wings and crying out without ever stopping to breathe, crying and crying until it collapsed back into its box as if dead from exhaustion. Some curious fool in Mother's coterie, unable to help herself, would inevitably press the box's jeweled lever to summon the frantic thing yet again. Over and over, they demanded the tiny metal bird to perform until I could no longer bear to hear him, and I dashed to my room. He has been with me so long now, he has followed me to the States. He cried out over the surf, crashing against the ocean steamer as England faded from view. Over the cacophony of the docks at New York, even in the silence of the empty hotel rooms, and over the shrill railway whistles. He no longer lives in a box. I don't know where he has lived all these years. I've never seen him. But I hear him at the queerest moments, chittering away, the whirring of his mechanical wings, clicking up and down, beating as rapidly as his mechanical heart. In these last long solitary months, away from everything I know, he is now as inescapable as my new life. I tried so very hard to fit in right away, but the cities, they were altogether too loud and too close. I could endure the handful of crowded days at sea, but I had thought to have space to think clearly once I arrived. At the mere opening of my windows in New York, 
My skin crawled with the noise. The screaming of the children in the lane, even those at play, raked upon my nerves and set me to quivering. So many people at once, at every turn. After one too many spells of confusion and disorientation, I was forced to confine myself to my room. And him. He loved the cities. He sang and sang. I begged him to let me sleep, and still he sang on, never gasping for breath, his wings clicking like a beetle's, and his clockworks knocking in my brain. I could hear his little beak snapping, fit to pierce my fingers and peck at my hands. I covered my face. I could not sleep. New York, Philadelphia, then Washington. I had to leave. I had to leave the cities or he would never let me sleep and I'd go mad. I hired a coach and departed west as far as it would take me, despite father's insistence that I stay near civilization. It was Mother who sent me away. We were in the garden. Mother held a luncheon for my 20th birthday. But he sang so loud I had to clap my hands and shriek to drown him out. When that didn't work, I tried to pound his screams out of my head, the ringing in my ears buying me only a few seconds of relief. I had done so well to hide him until then. The guests went quiet. Mother paled and looked at me as though I were a stray dead thing the poachers had left behind on the grounds. She could not stand the embarrassment. And so my room was emptied, my belongings packed. Even then he sang, the miserable beast, though nobody could hear him. Miss? Miss? Pleasure Town? We're here! Oh. I'll, um, I'll fetch your trunk down for you. You can collect yourself. Yes, thank you. I have never seen a place so dried out. Dried out and red like an old painting. A far cry from Mother's garden, brimming with lavender, roses, delphiniums, and wisteria. It is no sleepy village, but thankfully it is no city either. The townspeople seem welcoming. Some even introduced themselves to me when I first arrived, not at all like the shoving, shouting city. Why, I may even venture outside my room for more than a meal. I hope to. This place has a different sort of feel. A different sort of sound. I am not sure why, but I feel rather... safe here in Pleasure Town.
Nearly a week and I have yet to hear him sing. Perhaps I ought not to. I feel ashamed to admit it. But I miss his company. He's never left me this long. Where's he gone? Would Remy have... Would her life have been the same had her path never crossed with Amelia's? Well, would, would I have hit the deep dark of my depression if I hadn't met you? Would I have become an intolerable drunk if it weren't for your companionship? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you were born an intolerable drunk. Is that supposed to be a joke about my mama? Yes. Huh. Good one. Oh, Hey, Pleasure Town listeners, this is Emily Modaff, senior producer of the show, and it has been too long since I've said that. I missed you. We missed you. So thanks for tuning into the first episode of season three. If you haven't heard Pleasure Town before, the first two seasons are available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell us how you like this episode by connecting with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can leave us a rate and review on iTunes. And now to thank the wonderful people who made this episode possible. This episode of Pleasure Town was written by Guadalice Del Carmen and Gwyn Fulcher and performed by Melissa Dupree, Chris Higgins, David Pinter, Eve Rounds, and Hobart Thompson. Our executive producers are Keith Ecker and Aaron Cahoe. Our senior producer is me, Emily Modaff, and our associate producers are Joe Courtney, Brady Guy, Lizzie Seidenstricker, and Colin Wright. Our staff writers are Gwyn Fulcher and Sean Paris. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen, and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at PleasureTownShow.com. This has been a production of WBEZ Chicago.